Welcome to Mavericks, a pursuit podcast. Scaling a sales team is hard. Pursuit sources top sales talent for thousands of companies. We've seen firsthand the companies that are set up to win and the ones that are bound to fail. But recruiting is only a piece of the puzzle. In each episode, we speak to an industry expert specializing in a unique vertical within the sales motion who's walked the walk and successfully implemented a blueprint that has taken their sales team to the next level. Come get equipped, hear from the best, and level up your sales team. All right, I am excited to introduce you to our first guinea pig, I mean guest. Uh, I've got Greg Stanley here on the show. Uh, welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you very much, Carter. Really appreciate you having me and, and especially having me as your inaugural uh, guest on the show. Absolutely, man. Started off with a bang. The best goes first. So um, Greg is the president of Accelerant Consultants based out of Indiana. Um, Greg has become a friend of mine and is somebody that I've really um, grown to value his thoughts and opinions when it comes to sales. Um, and so I'm really excited for y'all to get an opportunity to hear from Greg today. Uh, Greg, if you will, would love just to hear a little bit about Accelerant, what you do, who you do it for. Yeah. So uh, Accelerant Consultants, ironically, was was founded by me six years ago today. Um, and oh, wow. So it was, yeah, kind of a special day um, and really was founded after spending 10 years of my career in a hyper growth technology organization that went from a million dollars in top line revenue when I started to $500 million by the time I had exited. And then working in a couple of different capacities at PwC, the big four accounting firm, helping them grow practices and build organizations and build out geographies and uh, do target market segmentation and compensation and a lot of those types of building teams, those types yeah. of things. I wanted to get back into the entrepreneurial realm a bit and uh, saw an opportunity to help middle market business owners in a functional area that I thought desperately needed some help based on what I had seen. Um, yep. And so we launched six years ago today, as I said, with the mission of helping as many small and middle market business owners as possible optimize their revenue function in a way that maximizes valuation. So that's really our mission. Uh, we operate generally in the B2B space with clients okay. that are doing anywhere from about $5 million in top line revenue, sometimes a bit down market from there up to $250 million in revenue just to help them holistically look at the revenue function, stop going to point solutions that generally don't have a lot of lasting impact and build the revenue machine, if you will, that then they can take over and run and run effectively. It's awesome. I love that. Well, man, congratulations, first off, in making it six years to your six year anniversary. Um, Thank you. That's a huge accomplishment. Uh, what led you to really uh, making the jump uh, from from being in-house within a company to starting your own business six years ago? Yeah, well, appreciate the question. And it, it was an interesting transformation in sort of letting the PwC thing run its course. I, I felt like I was getting more into big company operations mode and I had opportunities yeah. to do things more entrepreneurial, but that would have led to Boston or Orange County or coming from an area where it's pretty easy and inexpensive to live and having my parents still around and, and still healthy within a couple hour drive, just wasn't inclined to move to those geographies. Um, yeah. So in talking to a num number of middle market business owners, what I found and have really validated over the last six years is that it is, in my opinion, endemic in the middle market that almost no middle market business owners have come from the revenue function. They come from yep. sheet metal fabrication and die casting and technology and engineering and uh, science and uh, finance, wherever they come from, but it's generally not the revenue function. 
And as they start to scale the businesses um, where they have a high degree of operational effectiveness and discipline in other functional areas of their business, the revenue function seemed to be one that consistently stumbled just because that's not their background and it's not what they had done yeah. historically. I also yeah. saw a number of business owners getting a lot of help in uh, operations and finance and accounting and HR and a lot of other functional areas of their business. Uh, my opinion, and I think most people will agree with me, if you don't get the revenue function right, none of the rest of that stuff matters. So you got to get yep. the revenue function right. You got to address it holistically. And you've got to use that as the foundation of your business to then build out the rest of the components of the business. And so I, I saw while I had opportunities to join smaller middle market businesses as a partner or a CRO or in, a, in another capacity, um, I really saw this as an opportunity to have a high degree of intrinsic value and contribution to the middle market community where I thought I could have yep. um, or we could have a significant impact on these business owners as they tried to scale, making sure that they had at minimum a, a, a viable business that had the potential to sustain itself for a long period of time because of the level of intentionality that they operated with. And best yeah. case, they put themselves in a really good position to exit at a time and, and a place and way of their choosing. That's awesome. Well, man, congrats again. Uh, the fact that you're you're doing it six years later tells you that tells us that it's, it's been a success um, so far. Uh, I had an opportunity to read one of the white papers that you put out, um, and it talked about a concept called FRRT. Um, mm -hmm. I read through it and uh, thought it was really interesting. Thought it was really really good. Would love for you to talk to our listeners. Um, explain what FRRT is and how you're working with organizations on that. Yeah, so FRRT was really nothing more than my perspectives over the course of 25 plus years in sales, sales leadership, organizational leadership, uh, large team coaching types of environments, and seeing how buying decisions are typically made. And yeah. where we, we tend not to get into the sales training environment, I'm actually sitting in a room at Butler University where I teach a sales and sales leadership class, but that's not really the focus of, of our organization. But, but we do try to help salespeople and sales leaders grasp concepts that hopefully will help uh, uh, propel the business to greater uh, levels of growth and, and profitability. FRRT, in terms of focus of an organization and creating what is a consistent process and go-to-market strategy is once you've identified an ideal customer or client profile and you start that targeting process, uh, my view of how buying decisions are made are based on those four items. And the F stands for frequency. And it's frequency of contact with those that you're prospecting against. And it doesn't mean that more is better. It doesn't mean that twice a week is better than once a week, which is better than once a month. It means the right level of frequency for the buyer you've got in the organization they've got in a way that's culturally consistent with them and shows that you are on a continuous basis thinking about them and not necessarily just trying to sell them some something. Uh, so yep. that's the frequency. Recency is a little bit of a right place, right time, getting lucky yep. type, type of thing, but it does have something to uh, directly to do with the frequency. It's being um, um, top of mind in closest proximity as possible to when a buying decision is made. The R, the first R, um, uh, or, or the second R, I guess, that's recency relevance has to do with, make, or the second R has to do with relevance. So how yeah. relevant are you um, in terms of the buyer's mind in your ability to fix their problem? 
And relevance doesn't come in talking about your product or services or your capabilities or how long you've been in business or what you have the capability to do or how much you charge. None of that is relevant. It's about you are solving a business problem or issue. You are making their lives significantly better. You are solving a problem that they that, that you can uniquely solve that they can't solve through anyone else. And therefore, you are relevant relative to that business issue and making sure that you're speaking to the market in those terms. You are producing outcomes that hopefully no one else can produce the same way that you do or as well as you do. So that's the relevance. The T is really trust. And so you do things consistently with a process. You maintain contact with people. You maintain contact in a way that isn't just, do you have something for me today? And I'm just calling to follow up and see if you're ready to buy something. It's following up with, thought leadership or success stories of your other clients or discussions about outcomes that you've created or introductions that would help your prospective customers broaden their network or helping them in ways that your organization doesn't have a, a, a direct relationship to and there's really no value that you get other than investing in the relationship. And if you get the frequency, recency, relevance, and trust right, the vast majority of the time you're going to be on the winning end of, of buying decisions. Absolutely. Let, let me ask you this as kind of a follow up um, as a follow up question to that. Do you believe going into an organization is to take like uh, all accounts with the same frequency and recency? Like it, does it differ from client to client within an organization? Because even as you're speaking to that, like that resonates a lot uh, with with us and even our team of sales reps that are out there. And at the same time, like, do you believe creating a systematic approach that's the same approach with each client that's out there, or is there a different frequency required depending on who the client is? Well, I would say a couple of things. There's a different frequency based on who the client is and what the opportunity is and what position they have in the organization and what they're looking for from a contact perspective. So that will will vary kind of the approach and it's not a one size fits all. The other piece, um, as business owners, we love all customers. We don't love them all the same. We love all targets. We don't love them all the same. Come on, man. I love all my children the same. What you talking about? Well, some you love a whole lot more than others because some do a whole lot more. <laughs> than the ones you didn't love as much started doing more business, you'd probably love them more too. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, really it speaks to um, the fact that every action we take as business owners and or business people comes with an opportunity cost. So to the yep. extent you're investing in low margin, low growth opportunity, uh, not great fit, customers or prospects, you are choosing intentionally or unintentionally not to spend time with those that are higher priority or, or give, it, give you a greater opportunity to solve a bigger problem for those organizations and ultimately create a mutual win-win that is greater on both sides. And so uh, we really advocate for segmentation, not only in prospecting and coming up with a strategy on identification and, and retention of existing Um, high-profile, needle-moving types of customers, um, identification and capitalization of growth opportunities on those bigger customers, and then the targets making sure that we've got a a net new conversion strategy that's consistent with development of a a customer profile that when we get three years down the path, we've executed very consistently with a high level of discipline, and it creates over a multi-year period of time a significantly different customer portfolio than we would have had had we just taken anyone that would have come in the door and paid us to do anything that we do. Yep. 
relevance. I think, you know, one question that I have with that is I'm, if I'm a sales rep in one of these organizations, I want to stay relevant. And at the same time, like, man, I can tell you for me as, as I'm running Pursuit, I get a hundred emails a day from, uh, from different people and phone calls and cold calls and everything else. And like, you know, in a world that is, there's so much noise out there and these buyers are getting so much noise. How are you teaching these clients to, to stay relevant? How do these sales reps, how are they able to stay relevant in a world where there's so much noise out there? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. Number one, part of it is market messaging and the market messaging has to be compelling and differentiating. And I address that in the classes that I teach at Butler University. If you are just saying, for example, with your organization, we're a recruiting organization, we recruit salespeople. There are a bunch of other organizations that recruit that maybe don't focus exclusively on sales, but can recruit salespeople as well. So what's different in your model? And if there's nothing that's differentiating and compelling, the only um, uh, criteria that a customer has to make a decision is on price or fees. And so if you're not the low fee provider, generally people don't want to be the Walmart of their space and compete on price. You want to compete on the value that you provide. And hopefully that value is different than those that you compete against. So part of it's crafting, okay, and and really being introspective about what is it that we do different than our competition? And ultimately, what are those results or outcomes that we create that are different than our competition based on their model versus our model uh, that we have the ability to create? And, and so part of it is market messaging. Part of it, as I said, is, is helping clients in ways that uh, may not be directly related to your firm that create value for your, your customers. And, you know, I'll take myself as an example. I've got a client that has a partial, parcel shipping cost takeout offering, and it's a technology-based solution. They do a great job taking out cost in parcel shipping. Parcel shipping is not my area of expertise, but I do have a number of clients that do a lot of parcel shipping. And so just in making that connection and that network, I've saved some of my clients three, four, five, six hundred thousand dollars a year on their parcel shipping. And it more than pays by a factor of three or four or five X my fees for the engagement for their organization. So not only so you're creating they, value. Yeah, I'm creating value in more ways than I personally have to create. And the value that you create really just isn't in what I can create or you can create. It's in really what we can create, plus what those who were networked with, who have unique skills and experiences, who can also help the customers that we support. And how do we think about things more holistically than just what is typically self-serving and placing a body in an organization or helping an organization with a revenue function? It's awesome. It's good stuff. The other day we had a conversation around accountability and just three different parts of accountability um, with love and three different types of accountability within an organization. Will you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So um, when I coach my clients or when we coach our clients, we talk about three tiers of accountability. And so I, I make the analogy oftentimes of a house plant. If I buy a house plant at the store and I bring it home and it dies, is it as a result of the fact that it was a bad house plant or is it as a result of the fact that I put it in the wrong environment? So the, the first and more often than not, I can tell you it's because I put it in the wrong environment. I, I bear, buy very few bad plants. I put a lot of plants in the wrong environment. A lot of them die. What I can tell you is as business owners, we have an obligation to create the right environment for our people. And, and okay. that not only means an environment to say, I've got a good product or service and I've got a good uh, target market and, it, and my product and service is in demand. It means 
Do I have a strategy in place? Have I done target market segmentation? Have I worked on my market messaging? Have I built the weapons and tools that my salespeople can deploy consistently in the marketplace? Have I developed expectations that lead to a high-performing organization and help salespeople understand whether they're making progress against goals and attainment of goals and, and or not? Um, yep. Do I have a process to then do remediation or training or whatever needs to happen to make sure that people progress in the right way? So that's the first level of accountability. Once that environment is created, the second level of accountability falls with the sales team. If we're talking about a sales environment, they've got the responsibility or accountability to execute against the strategy and the expectations and the KPI and the job descriptions and in alignment, hopefully, with how their compensation structure is developed assuming the compensation structure is in alignment with the creation of, of organizational value. Um, they have that responsibility. And then the third level of accountability or third tier of accountability falls back on the organizational yep. leadership to make sure that the sales team is executing against what they're asked to execute against. We get into a lot of environments where hard conversations are hard and people want to avoid them and people want to make excuses yep. and people... I look at it or try to get my clients to look at it like being a GM of a professional franchise. If you're a GM of a, of a professional, call it a basketball franchise, because that's what we do here in Indiana, but you're the GM of a professional uh, basketball franchise and you've got a point guard that has four turnovers a game and two assists and three points. And for that same $3 million, you can get a point guard that scores 12 points and gets eight assists a game and only has one turnover. Yeah. You've got an obligation to the franchise, to the city, to the fans, to the other players on the team um, to make sure that you have the best possible talent that is put in the best possible environment to be successful. So those are the three. Which would be Baylor University, if they're, if, which would be Baylor University, correct? If, if they're good at basketball, is that right? Not TCU? You, who is coached by a Butler graduate, by the way? So yeah, they're one of the ones I would think of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, I love it. I uh, I see that a lot in organizations, especially smaller organizations. We work with a lot of we work with some professional services organizations where, um, like you were saying earlier, you have a lot of people that start a business that really have no sales background, and then they get to a place where they're ready to scale the business, and they're like, "All right, I'm going to go hire my first sales rep." You know, and it's just going to be plug and play and go. Right. But they haven't really thought through um, the things that you talked about at first, where the, the company is responsible and really needs to take ownership um, and be held accountable for setting the sales rep up for success from the beginning. Um, yeah, we and, see that quite that, often when they come to us. Yeah, to that point, a couple of things. Number one, professional services organizations are, I think, particularly challenging from a business development perspective because you get a lot of seller-doer environments and there's an expectation that those people who are technically trained, whether you're talking about architects or engineers or accountants or lawyers or whatever that, that uh, situation may be, or technologists, that is their core capability. And they'll hire a highly skilled, highly trained, uh, effective business development person or salesperson. And they'll say, just give me, give me leads and get out of my way. I'm going to close this. Yep. Well, that's not their core competency. And so really integrating sales into what they're doing and leveraging the core capabilities of, of a salesperson, I think, becomes key. And we do do a lot of work with organizations that are a little bit down market from that $5 million yep. mark where they're saying, OK, we're going to hire our first one or two or three salespeople. That is a yeah. massive investment in, in both time, energy, and real money. 
and um, we will come in and help build the framework to give them a much higher probability of success because they have created then the environment that the salesperson knows exactly what the expectations are. They've got guidance in terms of what target market segmentation looks like and what an ideal customer looks like. One of our first clients was a, a professional services organization and they had a rep whose territory was um, basically a, a city street in the middle of Indianapolis to the upper peninsula of Michigan to Cleveland to Chicago with no definition around um, industry, revenue size, for-profit, not-for-profit. Uh, and so it, was, it became a catch-as-catch-can. And at the end of the yeah. year, other than just the attainment of the number, which ultimately became a path of least resistance to income for the rep, which isn't exactly as a business owner how I'd like to craft my customer portfolio. But other than attainment of the number, nobody really had an idea whether that rep was successful or not and really yeah. may have been doing a lot of things that weren't necessarily a creative to value uh, creation in the organization. Absolutely. Greg, as you go in and work with different companies, obviously with, with what we do, we help organizations get the right people in the right seat. Um, you have uh, an inside look into different companies that probably do that well um, and, and inside look at a lot of companies that struggle uh, with, with the right people in their sales team. Um, would love to hear just kind of lessons that you've learned and things that you see, um, good or bad, uh, when it comes to, to getting the right people in the sales team. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would say is there is a perception of people who haven't been in a sales environment that people who are outgoing or engaging or fun or funny, they're going to make good salespeople. And that isn't necessarily the case. There's actually a great book by a guy named Daniel Pink that talks about how it's not necessarily the extroverts or the introverts that are most successful in sales. It's what's called the ambiverts. So those people that have the ability to vacillate between the two and can be either. Yeah. Um, what I see is those organizations that are really dialed into what characteristics, background, uh, industry knowledge, um, uh, uh, skill and will that the employees have coming in, um, those people that are really dialed in on, onto those attributes tend to have better uh, yeah. levels of success when they hire employees. Um, yeah. It's also not the right people in the right seats. In my opinion, it's the right people in the right seats in the right environment. And so okay. it's the creation of that environment that becomes really important as well as we just talked about in terms of making sure people are successful. The other thing that we tend to see is those companies that don't just allow themselves to get sold in an interview process by a salesperson where that is where they have their greatest sales capabilities um, yep. tend to tend to uh, work out better. So they have very specific questions around specific situations where that person individually has hunted, found, brought in, engaged team yep. members, uh, created net new sales. Uh, they have become intellectually curious. They have a level of accountability. They're coachable. So those questions that lead to, does this person have these attributes and characteristics or do they not? As opposed yep. to just having a, a sort of a free-for-all chit-chat and you say the person's likable, so they're going to make a good salesperson and I'm going to bring them in. Those tend yeah. not to lead to as high level of success. Yeah. So very thoughtful questions. And I would also add on to that is like uh, thoughtful questions in an interview process and then repeating those same questions with each candidate uh, so yes. that you can see the difference in an answers. Um, yeah, that's well. a great point, Carter. And, you know, clearly you see this world more than I do. 
but um, you have to have an apples to apples comparison at the end of the day to the extent you have just people coming in and having free form discussions um, yep. tends not to necessarily lead you to the best candidate, may lead you to the most likable person, but it doesn't necessarily lead you to the person that will give you the highest chance for success. Yeah. Greg, at what stage uh, should a company think about bringing somebody like yourself or, or somebody um, or you into their company in the organization? At what stage do you generally um, step in? Yeah, so we do a lot of presentations to entrepreneurial groups. Um, and one of the slides I use in the presentations was a quote by Gino Ariema, who's had a lot of success coaching the UConn women's basketball team. Mm -hmm. And what he says is the best time to evaluate why we're winning games is while we're winning games. And yeah. so I wrote very early on as I launched my firm, uh, a white paper that effectively uh, compared what a lot of companies thought about sales and revenue generation over the last 10 or 12 years. It has been relatively easier than it has been historically to generate yeah. revenue. There's a lot of free flowing capital in, in, the, um, in the markets. Uh, the government was spending a lot of money or had been spending a lot of money. There was a lot of liquidity. Money was effectively cheap um, or free. Um, the, the markets were increasing in value. Everybody was doing very well. And I, 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 at that point where I wrote the white paper, equated that to being in real estate in 05 and 06. Anything yeah. you touched in real estate in 05 and 06 and 07 was doing well. It didn't mean that everybody in real estate was an expert in real estate. It meant that you were riding the wave of that particular market, which I think a lot of businesses have done for the last 10 or 12 years. We've now got a little bit of economic headwind. And my advice is don't wait until you have challenges to engage somebody to make right. sure that you're doing the right thing and have optimized your revenue function. It will make yeah. the downsides much less steep and better prepare you for the upsides when they come back if you engage when things are going well. Um, so I would say it's a, it's a couple of things that are triggers. Number one, as I said, some smaller organizations that are saying we are on the cusp of hiring our first one, two, three, four, five sales reps, and we don't have a platform or any understanding of how to write a job description mm -hmm. or compensation structure, and we need to prepare for that. It can be business owners that are saying, okay, I'm thinking about exiting at some point, and every business owner will exit. Unfortunately, 80% um, of business owners, according to KeyBank, will not exit successfully or have a business that is not market ready, meaning they won't exit at all. And so if you wanna be in that top 20% category, you've gotta run a business with a high level of structure and inten intentionality and process and repeatability and have a platform for growth. And so whether you're thinking about exiting in two years or 10 years, there's never a bad time to optimize your revenue function and run a well-run disciplined business. Um, I will also say, and I've got another white paper that's out that's on my website, that the competitive landscape for small and middle market business owners is dramatically changing because of the influence of private equity. Private yeah, equity is now owning, yeah. Yeah, owning many of the companies that small businesses are competing against where they used to compete with other businesses that also may not have a lot of sophistication in their revenue function. Now they are competing with highly strategic, well-funded, well-managed organizations that have high expectations for returns and growth and the expectation that they will exit over time. Um, if they're not running the same types of businesses, they will ultimately become irrelevant and atrophy and die. Um, so regardless of whether they're thinking about exit, they've got to professionalize yeah. this piece of their business to even remain viable. Awesome. Um, how do they find you? If I'm a listener and I'm listening to this and I want to get in touch with you after the show, how do I do that? 
Yeah, so uh, happy to have conversations with any business owner or leader that is is interested in thoughts and perspectives on what a re- well-run revenue function looks like. Um, again, I started the firm knowing that I wanted a high level of intrinsic value, and if I can help people independent of whether it generates a project or fees, I'm happy to do that. Um, the website is accelerantconsultants.com, and uh, the, the email address, you can either me- email me directly at gstanley, S-T-A-N-L-E-Y at Accelerant Consultants with an S.com or info at accelerantconsultants.com. Awesome. Awesome, man. Uh, last question, most important question um, of, uh, of the show is uh, football season's coming up. Mm-hmm. I need your prediction on Baylor TCU. And so uh, Greg has a son at TCU, correct? He's actually graduated about uh, a year and a half ago, yeah. He- he graduated from TCU, um, and so we always have a little fun with the Baylor TCU uh, rivalry. So, give me your best prediction of Baylor TCU this year. Well, uh, Big Twelve is always high scoring. What I will say yep. is, uh, as I mentioned, I graduated from Butler University, and in 2010 and 2011, they had two phenomenal runs to the national championship. TCU kind of came out of nowhere last year to have a phenomenal run uh, to the national championship. I think they have the potential to be a bit of a Cinderella team again this year. Uh, oh, come on. The, the up talent in, in the Big 12. So given the scoring, given where I think TCU has the potential to go, I would say it's likely going to be uh, TCU 76, Baylor 12. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like a typical overconfident TCU fan to be. <laughs> Um, man, it's funny. We have we actually are having our Jersey Day in the office tomorrow, so I'm uh, the the trash talking has officially started uh, for the year. Um, well, who Greg, knows? I'm gonna borrow my son's jersey when I come in and meet with your team here in a week or so. <laughs> there you go. I look I look forward to it, man. I uh, I'm so thankful uh, for you in general. I appreciate you as a person, um, as a friend, and and I was uh, I'm so excited for our listeners to get the opportunity to learn from you today. Um, so I really appreciate you being our first guest on the on the podcast. Yeah, well, Carl, I really appreciate you and the partnership as well. You've done some phenomenal work for my clients and your specialization in the area that has more openings than any other in the business community. Every business has a need to generate revenue and generate revenue with top tier talent. You guys have a unique ability to find that. So I've really appreciated the work you've done for my clients, the partnership we've had as well. So look forward to that continuing. Wish you much success and really appreciate you having me on. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Carter.